cliffcentral.com. All right. Good morning, cliffcentral.com. And it is just after seven o'clock. If you've started your morning, I hope it is off to an awesome start. We want to hear from you. You can join in the comments section. You can also let us know what's uh, happening. And today is actually World Obesity Day. And Carl says, uh, is it true that World Obesity Day is spread over two days? Because it doesn't just fit in one, one day. <laughs> Look, you've got to find the humor in it, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about something. It's humor. So I mentioned uh, that, I, that I was in a beautiful, uh, natural, unspoiled place two weekends ago. But it turns out that the most polluted place on earth is closer than you think. Yes. It's right here near us. Saw an article, what it's like to live in the most polluted place on earth. And you immediately thought clickbait. I did think that. Yeah, and then that's I, what I would think. I looked at the uh, um, the source. Okay, so it's it's MoneyWeb. They do sometimes have kind of advertorials. Mm-hmm. But um, this was quite a good article to read. It's... It's actually the most polluted place on earth is actually the Vol Triangle. Oh, sis. Can you believe it? Sis. It's no, like me, 30 k's away from us. It, well, it's right here and, and, and may, may even be the source of some of our miles. water. Yeah. Ugh. Um, there are 1.7 people, million people living there. And it's known, <laughs> besides being in the Vol Triangle. Which is already horrible all on its own. They are actually... I mean, a triangle's never a good shape to be in. They can always back you into a corner. It's not a good place. Well, neither is round today on World Obesity Day. Okay. Um, But there are actually three um, industrial, you know, um, causes of these things right there in in the Vol Triangle. Well, you drive so, past it, all right? Yeah, so, well, here's what I know. You drive past Funderbell Park. Funderbell Park mm. is, oh my God, it's Mordor. Yeah. You've got the towers with the flames coming out of the top and literally the eye of Sauron following you on the highways. You drive past and you're like, like Frodo hiding behind the car window. It's just like, and it looks hot and there's smoke billowing out of the top and making the sky black. It's mm. Mount Doom. So that is Africa's biggest steel mill. And uh, it's got to be somewhere. So you know, yeah, better there, but still for those people, unfortunate, right? Then to the southeast of that, Ugh. near Vrenichen, there's the mm. Letabo coal power plant, and the name means happiness. Sure, like that's true. Yeah. Yeah, coal, coal power plant makes people happy. And that belches out ash and sulfur dioxide, sure, which we know is toxic. And then to finish off the triangle further south, outside a petrochemicals plant in Sasselberg, um, an adjacent neighborhood regularly reeks of rotten eggs from hydrogen sulfide, sulfide. in the air. yeah. What a trifecta of sure. terrible. Um, yeah, it, by, by some measures, it is the most polluted city in the world. The toxins are causing hundreds of premature deaths, hundreds across yeah, yeah, the, see, just so the Vol Triangle this alone. It's actually killing people. It's not just, oh, that's gross. No, it's actually killing people. Yeah. And like the article says, for those who are still breathing, most of them have respiratory disease. Yeah. Um. And what do you do when the un- unemployment rate makes me want to cough? Is so- <laughs> no, it does. <laughs> like when you were talking about the throat uh, guy earlier, <laughs> I just immediately want to cough. But okay, th- so this is a serious thing. I mean, we can make fun of it, and we can uh, we can mock and ridicule, uh, you know, rubbish places like the Vol Triangle. But that's actually very, very depressing. It's very depressing. If you are a young person growing up, again, we talk about like geographical privilege, mm-hmm. right? Where you're born is such an important part of this. 
you you just have to get away from there. Otherwise, you will end up with lung problems. Well, the thing is, if what happens if you don't have a job and that's where your job is, and you have to take it or leave it? In a in a, a country where we we're battling with unemployment, you just take what you can get. Horrific, horrific. But also, that's just the air pollution they're talking about. There's also water pollution in that area. A hundred percent. Right, the Val River flies it's, flows through there. It's one of our major sources of water in. Gauteng. It's also the, the, the biggest dam north of like the Free State. Mm. And we use it for agriculture. I mean, God alone knows what we're pumping into 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 you know irrigation and and, and sewage systems. Soil. And soil, the soil must be just permeated with like dangerous chemicals from all the stuff that comes out of the air. The rain brings it down. It ends up in the Val Dam. You yeah, you go for a swim. You go skiing on the Val uh, Dam, like so many people do. You come out with a third leg <laughs> or five testicles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so this study is one of the first to detail the scale of power plant p- pollution in South Africa. ESCOM has, of course, challenged this uh, report, mm-hmm. um, which nevertheless said its own research has found ESCOM. Like we need you and your research. Yeah. Uh, you guys, you know what? It would be bad enough if people were getting lung problems developing because of these uh, power stations of yours. Fine. That's that's almost part of the package. But then you can't even provide the electricity. All these people have died for, in vain. So the funny thing is, okay, this is ESCOM's thinking. They, they were against this report. They said, no, 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 no. This report is incorrect. Right. You know why it's incorrect, they said. Because you, Mr. Um, Holland... Um, who ran this consultant, Mike Holland from the UK, who ran mm-hmm. the study, said that 204 premature deaths were caused a year from this. Mm-hmm. And that's wrong because our research says about 330 people oh die from God. this so a year. It's worse. <laughs> it's worse. It's worse. <sighs> sure, ESCOM really, they need someone in PR there in a big way. huh? <laughs> it's just unbelievable. So they've actually made it worse. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just, that's horrific. Honestly, I mean, I feel very, very sorry for people who live in like Funderbell Park and and Freenaching, and ugh, mm. that's a really tough neighborhood. The, you know, things things that are in the air and in the water will try and kill you. And there, there are huge housing developments there, right alongside the factories, mm. for convenience for the workers. Mm. Uh, yeah. So that article saying, imagine what it's like to live in the most polluted place. It's thirty miles from where we are sitting right now in mm-hmm. Joburg. So don't think that that doesn't blow over here sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Now you make me want to go out with a mask again. <laughs> I just got through COVID. Now I got to wear a mask again. You want to go back I, to your place from last weekend? I do. I just want to go somewhere oh. where the where the humans have not ruined everything. And I'm not an environmentalist. You know this, no, right? No, yeah. I'm not one of these tree hugging greenies. But that's where I'm on their side. Is like people just can't be trusted to keep themselves tidy. Again, it's not just a beauty for the eyes. It's like the the lungs. Yeah. Yeah. Got to you can't ruin everything. You can't just make everything dirty and filthy and think there's no there's no comeuppance for you on the other side. Anyway, I mean that's scary. So we are we're the most polluted place on earth mm. is just down the road here. Mm. That's lovely. All right. And then speaking of Escom, there are a lot of people jumping in there. Uh Carl says they have no place doing research. They must focus on generating electricity. Those twats. 
Couldn't agree more. Mm. But you know, um, Roger Jardine was in here the other day, and I see TL brought up that I um, called it that they're going to drop out of the elections. I saw him make the announcement over the weekend. In fact, it was a Friday morning because we saw the, the messages starting to come through on social media that Roger Jardine has given up um, and he and his party change for good or whatever they're yeah. called, they're out. Uh, he's decided it's not worth contesting. They didn't have enough signatures or something. They decided they're out. And and you know what? Again, I got a double-edged sword here. Compliments on one side, insults on the other. But the compliment is I respect and admire anyone who throws their hat into the political ring, feels that they can make a difference, especially if it's someone who's lived uh, a, a life where they've – I mean, he's, a, he's an achiever. He's by no means some kind of schlub. But the guy has made a lot of money. He's done very well in South Africa. He's been an important part of, uh, you know, the transformation of South African business. He played a role in government. He played a role outside of government. There are lots of people who have a lot of respect for him. That's good. And I admire that he didn't just go into retirement, take his money and say, all right, it's your problem now. Mm. He decided, I'm going to get in here. I'll do what's right. So from that point of view, I have nothing but respect for Roger Jardine. The, the problem is, like, he just wouldn't have cut an impressive figure in politics. Not because he's a bad person, just because the actual politicians would have sunk their teeth and nails into him and he wouldn't have stood a chance. Someone like Gayton McKenzie, someone like Julius Malema, mm. frankly, even, even the guys in the DA, yeah. just eat him for breakfast. So, you know what? I'm happier for him that he's not in. Let's just put it that way. Imagine the stress. Tough business. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, again, uh, someone says here that Carl says, sure, Gareth, Roger, Jardine, really pissed. I don't, again, guys, like, you know, that this is a very South African thing. And I thought about this while Jimmy Carr was joking on stage on Saturday. South Africans mistake someone who is passionate about something because they've gone and looked up information and they've made themselves as educated as possible as possible on the subject. They look at people like that when they get... Um, argumentative or passionate in an argument. They go, oh, well, that person's hostile. That's mm. not the case at all. I'm always being misinterpreted, and it's, I understand it's a me problem. When I talk about something I care about, I can't help but infusing it with a lot of uh, emotionally charged language, mm. right? That's how I speak. That's what. That's why we were joking about the fat people before mm -hmm. seven. We were talking about Leanne's glasses. We were talking about, uh, you know, how, how people find this funny, but they don't find that funny. I can't help that I inject a little bit of feeling into the way I speak. Otherwise, oh, I'd Oh, thank be, goodness you do. I'd be monotonous and dreary yeah. and, and academic. So people interpret that as me being hostile or aggressive mm. because South Africans are weak. We've been taught that conciliation and respect and compromise is always the way to conduct a conversation. The best conversations are actually argumentative. And I don't want to go down a, a, a massive um, intellectual rabbit hole here of how you should or shouldn't argue a point because mm. everybody has different ways of doing it. You have a much more gentle way of doing it. Mm. In fact, women in general have a much better way of doing it in terms of it being friendly, accessible. I can't pretend to be any of those things. Yeah. When I talk about history, it comes across as passionate. 
it comes across as 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 I I'm invested in it. Yeah. Right. So when I talk about politics, the same thing happens. And then people assume that's because I have some personal gripe. And I really the last thing on my mind mm. is to have a personal. You know this. You've been around no, long 100%. enough to experience. I can't believe that uh, that Carl, who's a smart guy, thinks this still. That I would be that I'd have a personal issue with someone. Yeah. I really don't. Don't think about it any longer than I absolutely have to. If you ask me about it, it'll come up. I'm not sitting there steaming over politics. It is definitely a South African thing that told, you know. You know, keep, Ooh, keep just quiet. Avoid, yeah, avoid an, the last thing you want is complain. an argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't let anyone get upset. That's the worst thing that could possibly it's happen. It's the same, and I'm trying to remember now, South Africans have a, have difficulty in seeing the difference between, um, is it pride and arrogance? Well, confidence. Or like confidence, confidence and arrogance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've always had a problem with that too because – South Africans across the board, and, and again, the, the most amazing thing, we're always looking for things that, um, that we could say bring us together as a nation, but a lot of the things that bring us together are actually quite negative things. Uh, there are positive things. You know, we, we love sports. We love um, the outdoors. People like um, socializing. We love drinking as a country. We, there are lots of things that we like and we have in common, but one of the things that's negative that we have in common is this this predisposed notion of trying to it's almost like a bit of tall poppy syndrome it's not as bad as they have it in some places but like if someone's just a little bit too loud a little bit too um um comfortable saying what they think oh well they must be very arrogant Mm, very uppity very uppity and arrogant (laughs) so we we got to shut that person down can't you just be like moderate and calm Moderate and calm, there's a premium on those in South Africa. So that's not for everybody. Yeah. I'm so tired of this politically correct nanny pamphlet way we're expected to respond. Well, Sweet Pea doesn't give a shit, right? Sweet Pea's up there with me. She's very good. If you're she, you're like a honey badger. Yeah. Just don't give a damn. Right. A huge reaction says nothing wrong with a passionate debate. The word argumentative is probably a bit misleading. Well, again, we, we are. We're convinced in this country that the best way to do anything is to speak really softly and gently and that that's the way that we engage. And actually, the people who seem to be making the most difference in this country are not the ones who are speaking softly. Mm. The ones who are really getting people fired up and making people think are actually sometimes the ones who don't hold back. So I say more power to that. Frankly, even if you disagree with me on everything – like Voltaire said, I will defend your right to say those things. Yeah. Because to me, it's more important that we all are on the same page. Someone said over the weekend uh, in, in a, a podcast I was listening to, and I think this is such a valuable thing to incorporate into our national conversation, is we should make it okay to think out loud. The only place where real progress can be made is in a conversation where someone isn't guarding against offending somebody the whole time, Yeah, thinking twice about what they have to say before they say it so that they don't upset anyone. Um, John Stewart, the comedian, said once that he watched Hillary Clinton and you could almost see her buffering before mm. a question mm. so that she could say something after the question that would offend the least number of people. Yeah, because that's 
she was almost on the defensive in that regard and had to do that. Right. And also knows too well how one thing you say can be misconstrued and, you know, sit against you for the rest of your life. Yeah, so we need to, we need to uh, prioritize having the conversations again. We need to make it okay for people to think out loud because there is no such thing as a thought crime. Yeah, and to have, you know, the freedom to say something and go back and say, actually, I, I didn't mean that. Yeah. And, no and one allows you or forgives you for that. That's it. And you can, that's how you moderate yourself. You, know, you talk about where moderation is a, a virtue, is once you've had an outpouring of opinion, which may be all the wrong things, and then because social pressures and a little bit of correction comes in, you can then moderate your point of view. Mm. It's good. It happens to all of us unless you're a complete ignoramus. Yeah. So let's get the words going. Words are not violence. Words cannot kill you. Words need to be words. They don't need to be thought of as being something more powerful than they are. There mm. shouldn't be any word that has, you know, a powerful, magical incantation powers. There are no words that have that. I've always thought words are massively important, but they're also just words. So when you say something and you really mean it, it should be allowed to come out. Right, now, that's enough of that. (laughs) What do you have to do on Google Maps before you go traveling? Oh, so it's it's something that I picked up on. You actually, I didn't know this, have to calibrate your Google Maps every now and then. What? So you know when you are in a walking situation and I find the time that I, I would use at most is when I'm overseas, yes, you know, when like you, Europe yeah. or, mm-hmm. you know, wherever, um, using that function. And apparently you actually have to calibrate it because it starts going off a little bit each each year. So how do you calibrate your walk? Do you have to measure it and uh, give yourself a number? Yeah, it's I like, mean, a, like a handicap on a golf score? <laughs> I was reading this in bed and – I was going to just do it from my bed, but you actually have to be outside. So you have to be outside probably on a street so that you can like landmark and show where you are using your camera on your phone. Um, And apparently it makes a huge difference, especially when you're walking around in tiny cobblestone villages in Europe (laughs) or you're trying to find a specific restaurant in New York Mm -hmm. and it, it might be not picking up where you're standing. Right. So, yeah, I had no I mean, idea. sometimes happens with Uber as well, right? Yes. Oh. Sometimes the Uber will park really far from you and you wonder why. So how do I calibrate this? So this how is you important. do it? This is important. We all use these things. Um, what do we got? So it's apparently only a few seconds. There's how you get started. You open the Google Maps app. We're not going to be able to do it now because we're inside. Okay. Uh, you give it a few seconds to figure out where you're located. Mm-hmm. And then to ensure that it has your precise location, you tap the location indicator button in the bottom right corner of the screen. I'm going to have to – I'll listen to this again yeah. when I'm outside. Uh, for Android, it's a bit different. There's a spiked circle icon that looks like a compass. So on iPhone, there's an arrow icon pointing mm-hmm. to the upper right. You okay. know the one? Yes. Tapping that will center the map on your precise location. Okay. Then you tap the blue dot that represents you, yourself. Yes. And you can press calibrate. Huh. If Google Maps detects your location accuracy is low, it may automatically prompt you to calibrate. As prompted, you hold up your camera, you scan your surroundings with live view. 
Um, so you just hold the camera in front of you facing outward and you slowly pan oh. horizontally. So you're looking for buildings, streets, store signs. All right. Um, and then, yes, you do that in a circle, keeping it straight ahead. And it calibrates and you might see that your position actually switches quite a bit on the screen. Very good. I just Okay, that's useful. Why can't it do it for us if it can uh, do so much? Don't wait. Someone in Silicon Valley is <laughs> working on that right now. They're, they're, they're desperate for any innovation. Someone's going to figure that out for you. Oh, I really hope so. There are oh, too many things uh, to remember. It's too much. Uh, you have to keep updating stuff all the time. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 yeah, I agree with you. It but at least automated. now you understand why sometimes it's not picking up where you are. It's not okay. just a signal thing. The calibration thing. Carl reckons there isn't a single person in this country who uses the walk function on Google Maps. Uh, I don't know. I've used it in. I use I it in shopping centres. I have to. Plus, I mean, like, like we were saying, if you can get the um, the calibration right, it'll probably help you with all the other apps as well, mm. so that you can, you know, your Uber knows where to pick you up. I had an Uber pick me up like a couple of months ago, but it was like a block away. Oh. Yeah. I was like, what the hell's going on with my phone? Because it's definitely a me thing. Mm. Anyway, doesn't matter. <laughs> hey, listen, you want to know something sad? I don't know, do I? They're still looking for that MH370 plane, which oh. it vanished 10 years ago. Jeez, there's been a lot that's come out of that with pieces of the plane washing I up I, and I, 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 claims. I do not understand it. So Malaysia is considering renewing the search for MH370, which disappeared en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing 10 years ago. I mean... It's somewhere near a, a little group of islands. Really, must we... I mean, must we go and look for Amelia Earhart? Well, they found her plane just two weeks ago. Did they? <laughs> they think so. They think They've so. They've taken like sonographs so. or whatever they're called. Really? Um, must we go and find Rose... <laughs> from, oh no, she made it off the uh, Jack from the Titanic. Oh. <laughs> we must find no, Jack the from the is, Titanic, right? There's so much going on with this Ugh. behind the scenes. There are people who've invested their own money in finding where this thing is. Not because it's going to bring some kind of relief, but just because it's a mystery. It's a mystery, and they're, they're, we hate an unsolved mystery. There are bits of aeroplane washing up all over, and well, it looks like it's from this plane. We're reviewing a proposal from Ocean Infinity, said... Mm, I think that's a private company. Yeah, Malaysian Transport Minister, though, said uh, uh, the families of passengers have not given up hope. Uh, guys, the families have not not given up hope. Yeah. Surely for finding them alive, you've given up hope. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you're really, really just trying to be... You're living in mm -mm. cloud cuckoo land, honestly, mm. okay? And as far as like finding the bodies, I don't think that's going to happen, guys. No, then you're a bit delulu. Ten years? Imagine yeah. what happens to them in the sea. Ten years, you'd be lucky to find two atoms of the person. Got to move on, guys. Anyway, uh, the plane vanished in 2014 with 239 people on board. Two previous searches failed to locate the wreckage. The families of passengers are urging the Malaysian government to renew the search, continue to share information with them. Guys... What, what do they want to find? Just Because all you're going to find is yeah, a bit of plane. Right. The plane is in Eden Park, says uh, Chulu. Well, there we go. Eden Park. Oh. Well, Chulu's figured it out. Is that here? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, Mapelo says, the other day I realized Google Maps carries on showing you the directions and your current location even when you go offline. Yeah. E.g. out of the, vi uh, the Wi-Fi zone when traveling. Yeah, they've they've got this cool function where you can actually have 
offline maps. Mm -hmm. So if you are in a, a foreign city and you do use the thing to navigate, you don't have to have Wi-Fi the whole time. Yes. And you don't have to be on, on cell, right? Have they looked for the MH370 in the Val Triangle? Well, we wouldn't know because the, the, the sky is so darkened with soot <laughs> that it could be just doing circles there for 10 years. 10 years. <laughs> I don't know. 60 Minutes in Australia apparently did a great story on that plane about two weeks ago. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, like some stuff we just – we're never going to know. Yeah, Amelia Earhart, bring her up again. Mm. Poor old Amelia Earhart. Is it too soon to start joking about Amelia Earhart? Oh, well, I mean, like I say, it's, it's, quite, it's quite on point because there is this whole thing where they think they found too her Too soon to make jokes about MH370? I mean, really, I, that's a hell of a long flight. Can you imagine? I always try and think if I had a very close family member that had have been on that plane. Yeah. There's so much pain surrounding what happens when you lose someone, especially when you, you don't have closure. The closure, yeah. How far, how far would you take it? And then imagine adding religion to the mix where you think that you must always have hope. Hmm. You never know. They could still be alive. Uh, uh, guys, <laughs> after 10 years, they, no, they can't. No, they can't be. They just know? can't. Someone has to tell these people the mm. truth. You know, again, like, Someone in the Malaysian government has to sit down with all these families and say, listen, you guys have been at this for 10 years now. We've, we've, tried, we've looked. Private companies, like you said, governments, all been looking. Yeah. And it's, you've got to realize now that we're not going to find anything. I mean, really, like 10 years later, what, you're going to get an old bit of wing or? Yeah. I, I don't even think they know which uh, part of the Southern Pacific they need to be looking in. I think if if I remember, I haven't seen this most recent documentary, but I've seen one bef before that. And there were two thoughts. Either it had been taken over by terrorists. Aliens. aliens. <laughs> I heard the aliens. Voice. Did you? Yeah. And that it went north. And the other that makes more sense is that it went south. Yes. Um, so they kind of know where it should be. Hmm. But yeah. All right. Well, apparently uh, Tracy says you could watch the Heisgenuit Lievensdrama story on 1987's Helderberg disaster. Oh, yes. That still comes up, huh? Relatives recount that day and how it affected them. And they say it's heartbreaking. It's even years later, it's 1987. I mean, wow. It's a long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. All right. We've got so much to talk about this morning. But one of the things that we want to do is talk about obesity. It's World Obesity Day today. And more than one billion people around the world are now suffering from obesity, with the number having more, more than quadrupled since 1990. According to a study released by the Lancet Medical Journal, the epidemic is particularly hitting poorer countries. The rate is growing among children and adolescents faster than adults, according to the study carried out by the World Health Organization. There's a lot to unpack in that uh, brief introduction, and to help us do it, we're joined by Dr. Fatima Patel, again, how are you, Doc? I'm fine. How are you, Gareth? How's nice to audience? see you. Hi, nice yeah. to see hey. you. Very good. Thank you. You were, such a, you were such a hit last time. They want you back. <laughs> <laughs> Love having you here. And also today, we're joined by Dr. Sandy Bruder, who is a well-respected endocrinologist. He's based at Life Fourways Hospital and speaks locally and internationally on endocrinology and philosophy. Dr. Ruder is also authored and co-authored in local and international journals on topics like the ones we're going to talk about today. Uh, diabetes, also philosophy and medicine, and of course, obesity. So, Doc, nice to have you here too. Thank you. Thanks, Gareth. How are you? 
Well, yes, sir. Excellent, excellent. I'm so relieved that both of them came in and neither of them are fat because I wouldn't know how to do it. <laughs> it's always so, awkward, hey? It's so awkward when you're talking about fat and there's like fat people right there. But we do have to talk about this because as much as I make fun of and I am made fun of because I also looked in the mirror this morning and thought I have no room to <laughs> But you just, you've lost five kgs this year already. I, I have, but I still am not happy. And uh, I don't have body dysmorphia, so don't worry about that. But I do think there are a lot of people who are suffering in a very real way mm. every day because of this. And there's a huge difference. You actually told me this, Dr. Fatima, the other day. You said the big difference between the people who are really, really obese, they've gone like beyond a certain point where it's just a weight loss thing and – you know, eat less, run more, which you I know you agree with my diet yeah. there. But they're people who are really, really struggling. So I'm glad to have two people here who can really help us understand this too. So where do we begin? Let's talk a little bit about what obesity is. Because I've heard that there's a big difference between overweight and obese. And then there's a difference between obese and morbidly obese, if we're even allowed to use that term. So Dr. Sandeep, do you want to take us through the definitions just so that we can make sure we're on the same page? Yeah, sure, Gareth. Um, look, things exist in a, in a spectrum and um, we categorize things in science and medicine for us to work with uh, an issue accurately and correctly to get the best help to people. So obesity is defined as a state of excessive fat accumulation in the body and that accumulation of fat becomes bad for you, to put it simply. It has a lot of consequences. So when we categorize weight, we use this parameter called the body mass index mm. By and large, it is useful, but there are certain caveats in different ethnicities and people of different belts where you've got to be a bit cautious about its use. And perhaps things like waist circumference or waist uh, to height ratios may be more applicable. And a lot of research around that. But the idea is that the higher the body mass index, the higher your rate of complications. So overweight would be categorized as a BMI over 25 Obesity is 30 and above, then this class 1, 2, and 3 obesity up to 40, uh, greater than which it's uh, morbid obesity. Meaning if we don't deal with this, you're going to get some serious consequences soon. And we've got to work on it more aggressively. And the consequences of that are the big issue, you know, cardiovascular, cancer, mechanical issues, back pain, knee pains, osteoarthritis. So, and, and that causes a lot of what we call morbidity mm. and mortality ultimately leads right. to death. You see? Yeah. So, you also got to include things like cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes. They all become, uh, you become at high risk for those diseases when you're obese or when you have a high BMI, like Dr. Ruda's is talking about now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's also the reason I bring up the definitions is because a lot of this has now been obscured. It's no longer just the province of medical experts because the definitions have now also become social mm -hmm. and there's, there's an element of those social definitions which has been politically corrected mm -hmm. so that we now have people who say, well, I'm body positive, but they've got a BMI over 40, for example. And those people are in danger of a number of things that you've just listed. Correct. But we are supposed to just turn a blind eye because society, and not all of us are medically trained like you two are, society's led by the nose so that we have to go, well, that's absolutely fine. It's okay if my sister or my aunt is just enormous and has no uh, gris, grip on her, on her own uh, health, but we must all pretend that it's absolutely fine. So I don't expect you to change that. You know, you yeah, can only inform That's the theme people. of uh, World Obesity Day. Is let's talk ob about obesity and is to start these conversations. They're difficult conversations, but to actually start them. 
Yes. It can affect policy change. It can turn words into action. I think that's I think that's the first point where we start is let's have the conversations. Let's be cross-collaborative. Um, Dr. Ruda is more of an expert in, in yeah. this and we'll, we'll yeah. listen to him. So I think one of the things, Gareth, that the discussion around and it's been debated for a couple of years now is how to or whether we should medicalize obesity as a disease. And there's a Lancet commission going on on that at the moment. So if you medicalize a thing, there's an element of biological determinism in it. And there's a caution in this, um, there's a review in the Lancet on it, mm -hmm. that perhaps the dilemma of human choice in things is something that will be sidelined. And it's not a judgment or anything on anyone. Ultimately, we are a species that are have this dilemma of choice in everything we do, but on what basis we choose uh, becomes the issue. And the environmental and social determinants of health are very important in that determination. But then there is that biological element. Once you've got established obesity, there's a lot of physiology that goes wrong that leads to disease. So if you medicalize that part, then these issues around a feeling of what obesity is can be objectively managed, you know, and say, look, this is a medical conundrum. And if you look into it without any feelings about it, then we have to do something about it. And that drives better treatments in the long term at the individual level. But then if you understand the social determinants as well, then we've got to work on that area as well in terms of food insecurity, the junk food marketing, et cetera, which is mm -hmm. all very important as well. So you've got this individual at the center of everything yeah. with a positive energy balance. And the influences are macrocosmic and microcosmic, you see. Mm. And you've got to see it that way. And maybe one more point to make uh, before we go on is that there's a tendency in medicine to look at disease based on our history of how we've developed medicine. Remember in the past, treatments were acute. You've got a bacterial illness, the rise of antibiotics, would, you, know, you fix it immediately. Sure. Then there's trauma. We come out of an era of wars in the 1900s and 1800s. So trauma medicine is acute medicine. But in the modern times where there's a lot of technological advancement and life has changed, although there's a polarization of low and high socioeconomic status, sure. the diseases we're seeing, we call them lifestyle diseases, non-communicable diseases. Mm -hmm. And the causation is protracted over a period of time. You cannot fix that overnight. So it requires a different way of thinking about it in the long term. You know, and I think that's important. Yeah. Mm, so complex. <clears throat> you know, I, I think when, you, when you're dealing with a disease like cancer, um, yes, there are a lot of choices still that the human being can, can make going into that, for instance, lifestyles, not smoking, etc. But it almost feels like with obesity, there's even more. It's hormonal. It's, um, it's your DNA. It's your stresses in life. It's whether you have money or not, you know, to, to whether McDonald's is going to be cheaper yeah. than buying um, roasted vegetable That's meal. Right. Yeah. There's just so much that goes into it. It's so complex. It is quite complex, but we have to try and see simple logic in things. And uh, even that, you mentioned cancer, for example. It is now obesity is a risk factor for most of the common cancers mm. we see. So breast, colon, kidney, um, mm. endometrial cancer, right? So if we start educating the populace on this causation, see, obesity comes out of certain causes. Once you have obesity, it becomes the causal factor for other effects. So there's this law of life called cause and effect is playing out whether we like it or not. Right. You know? And we've got to examine that. 
If you look at cancer also, there's a flip side to the argument. Cancer cells grow in areas of constant damage to the body. We expose ourselves to the sun all mm -hmm. the time, get damaged, damaged. That's where cancer will grow. The lungs, smoking all the time yep. is damaged. It will grow there. So perhaps we need this philosophy. How is our body getting damaged in our current modern lifestyles? Perhaps there's a problem here also where science is a bit fragmented from how we use it to design life and policy. There's a separation. You see, ancients, and I am a bit of a philosopher on this aspect, which can lead to some disagreement, but it's a, it's a thought to consider that when people analyze nature, the laws of science and what can go wrong, we would use that understanding to improve our relationship with the environment and nature. So in today's times, that would be policy, how we structure society, etc. We don't do that enough. It's almost like we will carry on in this trajectory of how we're living, yeah. and something must fix it on the side. And I feel there's a discrepancy there that we need to infuse our learning into proper policy, you know? And, mm. um, and also, I mean, in South Africa, we have a very peculiar mm. set of circumstances too. I mean, we've I've discussed with, with Dr. Patel uh, diabetes and how, how important that is in taking South Africa into consideration mm -hmm. as a whole. So we're, we're, we're a fat country. Yeah. We are. We're probably amongst, I can't remember the rating currently, but I mean, the current numbers are looking at 68% female population ob obese and about 34% more or less. Correct me if I'm it's wrong. It's a big difference. Of what, male. Are we, are we being unfair if we just say, oh, well, women are, are, are more affected by this because uh, it's just unlucky. What's the, what's the story? I mean, yeah. why is there such a discrepancy between male and female obesity in South Africa? Isn't there a hormonal influence as well? That's what Leanne the difference was difference of the sexes right, yeah. as well. So there's a lot of research that is going on to try and investigate this. Um, but there are some factors that are being identified. So certainly women tend to go through more hormonal changes during life um, and those become vulnerable periods. We know during menopause, there's a general weight gain of about a kilo or two. Mm. But you see, you look at context matters. When you look at that change in an urban environment with our risk factors, the weight gain is much more than if you see someone who's living an active rural life, very natural yeah. kind of, uh, you know, physical labor kind of life. That's, that's one question. Um, risk factors like smoking, alcohol intake, high-calorie foods, sedentariness all play a role in that context. So a given hormonal change, like pregnancy even, is a hormonal flux. Mm -hmm. And you will see patients in a high um, sort of obesogenic environment will put on more weight during pregnancy, which is more difficult to lose. Um, so there may be some hormonal contribution, my genetic contribution as well, but the context is the environment still. And, and the degree of weight gain then differs. Another, there was one little study in, at the, in Cape Town, I think it was UCT, uh, a small study that showed women coming from rural areas of South Africa to the city where they get a tertiary education and take on work in corporate environments. The, women tend to take on more sedentary jobs, office work, mm -hmm. whereas the men will come in a more hard labor, you see? So there may be those kinds of differences too that uh, lead to uh, sort of um, uh, changes. And then, I mean, I read one small study where prolonged use of the oral contraceptive pill, for example, which a lot of women right. use for different reasons, may contribute to development of insulin resistance in the long term, which may contribute to a bit extra weight gain. So, and then last one, perhaps, Gareth, 
endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment, hyperestrogenism and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, uh, this huge amount of research needs to be done there. They're everywhere, you know. Yeah. Mm. So we've got to think about these things, yeah. I, I, I find this fascinating mm. stuff because there are also all those other complicating lifestyle factors, sleep, um, mm, the kind of stress. food we eat, stress, uh, exposure to, as you said, all the advertising and marketing and all of this stuff. We mustn't pretend it doesn't have an effect. So you've got a complex universe of things acting on the individual and they also have choices, as you mentioned. Mm. And sometimes they make the wrong choices, but they can't just we can't just blame them for the wrong choices mm -hmm. in all of this because there's so much other mm -hmm. stuff that comes into play. I think I think Sandeep can talk to this, but the, one of the biggest factors that has influenced this, especially in the field of diabetes, is urbanization. We spoke about this with uh, Dr. Mamdu else also when we did yes, the podcast for Walmart. Yeah. It seems like urbanization was the uh, catalyst for all of what we're experiencing now in terms of the situational and environmental factors that we're seeing influencing this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I mean when I say, you know, the science should try and direct policy in our design of mm. society. Urbanization has just happened without us considering what the consequences would be. If you study some of ancient civilizations, um, I'm particularly fond of studying mm. the East and the structure of society, the design of buildings, work, etc. Mm. was all designed around human being actualizing a purpose. And the purpose, everyone wants one thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's peace, bliss, happiness. Mm. How we pursue that becomes the question. And in today's environment, it's become materialistic uh, sense enjoyment, you see. So if we don't know a better way, then we become by default herd mentality. That's the slave mentality, isn't it? So Correct. yeah, environmental change, but also developing human intellectual self-sufficiency that we can direct choices better. That combination, I think, is very, very important. So what, what can ordinary people who are not necessarily, let's say you, you, you may be overweight, you may even be obese, you want to take charge of things and make your life a bit better, you don't want to put yourself at risk of heart disease and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. How can you start, apart from the obvious of eat less and run more, which Dr. Mm. Patel, I know, is a supporter of. You love my, you love my diet, right? I, I just want, love exercise. I, just I wanted, love exercise. I just Karen. wanted you to do the forward for it so it could have some medical credibility. But I love, I love exercising, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge <laughs> fan and an advocate for exercising. No, you are, and, and uh, it's, it's important to exercise, but what else can people do besides, you know, kind of moderate their intake of calories and, and, and do a bit of physical exercise so they're not sedentary the whole time. And if we can add to that question, a Zempic. Oh, yeah. We've got to bring that up. Mm -hmm. I have to know these Which things. has become a category name for a whole lot of drugs. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Because mm. now people just say Ozempic, but they could mean one of 20 yeah, different kinds, absolutely. right? <clears throat> so let me start with the first part. That's okay, Fatima. Sure. <laughs> um, Look, I think if you look at a series of studies, um, Bluer is one of the good researchers in obesity, a nice uh, review in a high-impact journal, Nature Endocrine Reviews. The cause of obesity it puts it in three categories. There's overeating, there's physical inactivity, and there's other. And the overeating, once again, and physical lack of physical activity, we're not judging people. That's not what we're saying. It's We've acclimatized to it. So under overeating, he puts a whole list Social cultural phenomenon, start to main dessert, after dinner mince, the business lunches. They, they've all been designed without a purpose. People eat when they're stressed, emotional, peer pressure, 
You know, there's so many reasons, uh, wrong knowledge about what is the correct food. So yeah, all that has to be addressed. So we are in an overeating culture. So to eat a little bit better is not ideal. We've got to understand what is a normal diet. If you look at some of the reviews on um, the Khoisan diets, Hadza of Tanzania, the uh, Bajau in the Philippines, what we're actually supposed to eat is very little. And that's why intermittent fasting and these things today are considered fads and extremism, you know. We're not going to starve, but to, to change to a different climate requires a perception and a paradigm shift. So that's the one thing on eating. Physical activity, action is the insignia of life. There's the concept of disuse atrophy. What we don't use in nature becomes stagnant and putrid. So you look at that documentary on Netflix, The, the Blue Zone. Those people mm. were active. They did everything manually. Now, we got to try and replicate that in urban environments to some degree. Then there's the other part, abnormal sleep cycle, mm. um, uh, what do you call it, thermogenesis. Is some studies showing that because we don't get cold in winter anymore because we've got heaters around, we don't activate enough We're brown fat. We're not burning fat. the fat yeah, into... Yeah. There, into there actually is brown fat bet between the scapula. Oh, the brown back. fat sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> sounds really... Well, you want more of it because it burns the bad fat, right? Yeah. Okay. So that cold exposure, you know, so there's many other reasons. There's uh, uh, neuroendocrine factors where the thermostat for weight and appetite control gets set lower for some reason. And that's where these new drugs are useful. So I think, like we said earlier, it's very complex, but you've got to address all of these things. Now, if you don't understand complexity and you want instant gratification, then you want a drug now to fix it. Now, there have been the advent of very useful medications in the treatment of obesity, and that particular class, one of them is the GLP-1 receptor agonist. These are hormones of the gut-brain axis, which when used appropriately can help reset those thermostats and do give obese patients a good advantage to start losing weight mm. along with lifestyle changes. Now, the particular drug you mentioned uh, belongs to that class, but that one was first studied for diabetes, mm. and the weight loss was a minor side effect. I would say that uh, that drug, semaglutide, is useful in diabetics, and it's life-saving in some of them. It showed mm -hmm. uh, cardiovascular risk reduction. A spin-off of that was study of the same drug at a higher dose for obesity, which is not available in this country at the moment. And a shortage of that drug abroad led to the awareness of semaglutide, one milligram, and um, a shortage of that. Now that actually some of our diabetic patients are completely deprived of it. Because you know, of, of Hollywood yeah. elites that Jeez. are busy well, injecting yeah. themselves. You see, and and that's the thing. So <laughs> that's why I think to medicalize an aspect of it is important because mm -hmm. you want to get bang for buck here in terms of a medical benefit. And remember, all drugs have side effects. There are other drugs also that work more centrally, like naltrexone, bupropion, for the craving center, etc. So when you're using drugs, you've got to weigh benefits and risks and individualize the approach to a patient where some buy into a holistic process. And you use the drugs like a pole vault. Yeah. My approach in the long term is, see, you want to get use the pole vault to get to the high bar to cross it. That's your success. But you need to learn to use this pole appropriately. Otherwise, you're going to fall. Okay. Right? Yeah. And once you get to the bar, you have to let it go to achieve your success, isn't it? Right. So if you think of that analogy like that, we can work with patients long-term. My yeah. patients, two, three years sometimes. I know there's a drive to want to use these drugs chronically like you would a statin for cholesterol. I think it's too early to say that. Um, and uh, there are advancements in it also happening. But 
side effect wise, I would also be a bit cautious. A lot of gastric side effects. Um, you know, we can't say we've put the thyroid side effects to bed yet. Mm. You know, they're, they're a small issue. They, the, the current thyroid side effects in terms of risk of thyroid cancer um, don't, um, don't mandate us to not use the drug. The benefits still far outweigh the risk. But, you know, when you use things long-term and it's uh, more prevalent in use in the real world, that's when things start popping up. So mm. while there are good treatments, I think we have to use it appropriately. Yeah, it's so easy to get caught in that trap of taking your six-month script and just refilling it mm. until eventually 10, 15 years have passed yeah. and you haven't had anything reassessed. I'm on thyroid medication. Um, I haven't had that reassessed in Eight years. Yeah. I'm just taking the medication. Yeah, um, Leanne, you should have that assessment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I, I was she very can't careful. even see through her glasses this morning. <laughs> There's a woman with many problems. We're starting with <laughs> with sight so that I can drive to the doctors. No, she's got. A, she's got uh, you should see the stuff that they uh, added to her her bill. I mean, it's like stuff here that I, I think that they're just taking the piss. There's one there that says. Uh, at the bottom, what scan? A fundus scan? No, no, that's to, that we figured out. Yeah, that, we figured that's that out. Your eye examination. Yeah, uh, it doesn't so matter. So we're starting. Then, then let's get into we're starting it. somewhere, and um, I think the best successes I've had in the past with weight control have been with endocrinologists. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that that's uh, the way to go, especially when you're dealing with things like insulin resistance, which I have. Um, but uh, yeah, you know. The, de- the dangling of the Sozempic carrot oh, yeah. in front of everyone. People, people are desperate <laughs> for a cure-all. I mean, they've been talking about the pill that you could pop or the injection you could get one day There's so always that you'd something. lose always weight. Always looking for the silver always. bullet. And I mean, wouldn't the pharmaceutical companies love to have that silver bullet because they could sell it at uh, whatever price they wanted? Yeah, I think there's a lot of money to be made in the field, so you've got to be cautious of that too. Sure. Um, I would say that by and large, a lot of the use of obesity medications has been outside of the obesity space. Um, so people are getting these drugs uh, without prescription in some instances. Mm. There have been a lot of um, issues where fake versions of it are appearing and you have to be cautious. Um, <laughs> and it's in the space of cosmetics and vanity. That's it. Uh, I need to lose weight for a wedding. Um, so that's where you're seeing a lot of use as well. What we're sitting here and talking about is obesity as a medical problem, you see, and yeah. appropriate um, identification of those patients and then selective drug use yeah. where appropriate. That's important, I think. I think ultimately mm. it comes down to a multifactorial approach. It's not just one thing. It's m- many things that are contributing to what we're seeing now in this epidemic. And uh, medical is one of the one of the issues that has to be addressed for a patient. Sure, but I'm, I do again think that there's quite a lot of this that is about the person making choices and being responsible for themselves. You know, there are obviously things that are beyond everybody's control, environmental mm. circumstances. There may be genetic uh, components of this as well. It could be all kinds of things, but ultimately the one thing you can do something about is decide to do something yeah. about it. Yeah, that, that choice exists for all of us. The degree to which we can make those choices in a better way depends on certain fundamental values also, uh, Gareth, which we don't talk about. If you read uh, Confucius and uh, Buddha, you know, um, extract philosophies, forget the character and personality, but the eternal truths yes. of duties over rights, gratitude, unselfishness. You know, if those sorts of fundamental values are considered in our choices, 
I think a lot of things aside from obesity can change. And uh, that's what we don't think about. There's the other side of society, unfortunately, and I've worked in some of the rural areas of South Africa where it, it really is difficult to bear sometimes where people on traditional diets and subsistence farming had access to healthy, nutritious food, mm. uh, high protein sources from animals, eggs, and the vegetation they grew in Limpopo, in Venda, etc. But now because of the food systems changing and the, the structure of society changing, mm. I mean, you're getting shot. You know, the, the the food that we ought to be eating has become niche. Organic veggies you get at mm -hmm. a shop in Bryanston yeah. at a high cost yeah. is Farmers what market. they were growing, <laughs> you know. So that food security issue, especially with the poor and marginalized, a loaf of bread and a two-liter Coke with acha is mm. not food. It's not nutritious, you know. And I think that needs to be addressed. And you look at guys like Healthy Living Alliance and Priceless, Professor Karen Hoffman's work. I think we should try and support those sorts of things, you know. South Africa is, is a place where it could be a microcosm of new things that can be born. But there's a tendency just to copy-paste, especially in medicine, how Western paradigms go, mm. especially America. And, uh, and America's got no room to talk about this stuff. <laughs> no. Because, I mean, they're a very fat country too, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of questions here. Uh, someone wants to know about intermittent fasting um, because according to JP, he heard you say that you shouldn't attempt it, but you're actually saying you think it's fine. We, we eat too much. Yeah, I mean, it depends how you look at intermittent fasting. And once again, with everything, context matters. In a certain vulnerable group, you're not going to suddenly do intermittent fasting, pregnant woman or someone mm -hmm. who has other issues. But if you have a philosophy of minimizing your caloric intake, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 46 years old now. I, I, you could say my lifestyle is intermittent fasting. I don't have the desire to eat three meals a day. You know, two simple meals, mm -hmm. very nutritious. I enjoy my food. And that's enough to maintain my body. You have that philosophy. Now you could do intermittent fasting in terms of a time-restricted or a day-restricted. These are medical yeah. ways of doing things. The studies, there have been studies that have shown you can get weight loss, you can improve diabetes markers in some case. Look, if you catch type 2 diabetes in obese patients early, 15% weight loss and maintenance of that weight loss has been shown to put it into remission. You know, yeah. So we can achieve those things through lifestyle interventions. Intermittent fasting has benefits in improving longevity, reducing cancer risk. Uh, and there's some data on Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Oh, really? Yeah. So yeah, even, yeah. even those sorts of diseases yeah, yeah. can be improved. There's a link with Alzheimer's being, a, there was a discussion I remember some years ago about calling it a type 3 diabetes. You know? mm. high, we're seeing a lot of dementia and people consume highly refined sugars and high calories in their life. <sighs> Guys with a sweet tooth. Right, sugar. See, yeah. So there's a lot of causation here mm -hmm. that I think will come to the fore in years to come. You know? So a couple of quick questions from the, uh, the, the comments section here. So we've got someone who says, what about carnivore diets? You want to address that one? Dr. Ruder, I leave that I in your I don't know much experts. about the carnivore diet. Um, okay. But, I mean, look, I mean, the, I've probably just read it in passing is people just eating really meat and yeah. avoiding yeah. veggies and that sort of thing. 175 country 20-year study showed that the healthiest diets on earth were cultures imbibed Vegetables, vegetarian diets are healthiest. Then you get the Mediterranean type of diet where it's lots of veggies, chicken, oily fish like tuna, salmon, that sort of thing. 
as you start getting to the red meat level, the uh, health outcomes are a little worse. And once you add processed meat, it's terrible. So processed meat, definite no-no. So I think a sense of proportion is very important. You okay. Know? Um, I think it also comes down to the individual. Yeah, yeah. You ca- it's not a one diet fits all for everyone. Mm-hmm. It has to come down to that person, has to be assessed medically, clinically, um, their environment, how their work sustains their diets, their, their lifestyle. It has to be assessed holistically mm-hmm. and so individualized. It's not a one fit all So here's solution. an easy, easy question from Carl. He says, do cold plunges really kill fat? <laughs> They'll kill you if you're not careful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> don't tell that to Ben. <laughs> well, first thing on a winter's morning, I don't think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, those, those uh, sorts of, uh, I don't know what he's talking about. I can't remember the chap's name, the Iceman guy, right? Yes. Look, I mean, these sorts of interventions, I study a lot of history. You imagine an ancient sage waking up in his hut, very knowledgeable, takes a dip in the ice-cold Ganges, exposes himself to the sun in the morning, and then gets about his daily business. He's living within circadian rhythm. And there is evidence that cold exposure at certain times can reset a lot of our circadian clock. Whether it directly burns fat is a different issue. But you see, we tend to think about things myopically like that, well, there's burn fat. No, yeah. maybe if it's part of a good rhythm of life, then um, then you're okay, you know. And certain circadian clocks is a big issue in, in endocrinology mm. right now. Every cell in the body has been identified to have a genetic clock, which is in keeping with the timing of the sun cycle. So the human beings today, when we choose to do what we like, how we like it, and avoid what we dislike, we tend to burn the midnight oil and work into sleep later, isn't it? Mm. So mm-hmm. that's against this clock. And the studies are very clear that that disturbance of clocks leads to a lot of metabolic disease, yeah. including lipogenesis, which is fat formation. You know? Well, I think, unfortunately, that's all we got time for. But this is a fascinating yeah. subject. And I do think we've uh, just started scratching the surface. But it's, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. Mm. right? And, and people are dealing with this on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Uh, whether you're old, young, rich, poor... Yeah. It doesn't seem to make uh, much difference. Everybody has their own battle against yeah. obesity. I'm mm. just glad that I can now say I'm not um, overweight or obese. I'm just going through lipogenesis. <laughs> 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 Sounds much fancier. <laughs> but that's the point of all obesity days, to start these conversations. Yeah. That's where it all starts. And to, through platforms like this, broadcasting. And and, and uh, not to be afraid to talk about yeah. it. Because also there's, there's this thing that's crept in now where people are afraid to even have the discussion. Yeah. You know, the last thing you want to do is uh, is have someone sit next to you on a plane and they're enormous and now you're just, you're just desperate that they don't talk to you or you don't talk <laughs> to them. It frightens the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Like, what's she going to do when the meal comes? What's yeah. she going to do? She's going to you eat should, yours you too. your own private jet. What's actually? she going to do? I should, right? <laughs> I really, that's a big travesty of justice that I don't have my own private jet. All right. Well, listen, I mean, this has been terrific. Thank you so much, Dr. Sandeep Ruda. It's very nice Thanks, to meet guys. you. And I love the... A philosophy angle here. Mm. I got a gift for you, some books. Oh, uh, more, more uh, books to read. I'm yeah. be in, uh, your books? No. Oh, okay. Well, I'm excited. Yeah. I'll, I'll be sure to share these with the audience. And thank you, Dr. Fatima it's Patel. It's always nice to see you. Always good to be here. Yeah, this is good. So we got lots to think about, everybody, on World Fa- I'm sorry, Obesity Day. <laughs> World Obesity Day. And uh, you can find out more. Head over to cliffcentral.com. And we've got plenty of other content that you'd be interested in. Plus, we'll put all the links to everything that you've heard about today. All right, that's it. That's all we got time for. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cliffcentral.com.